As Rachel said before the Bible reading is read, um, just want to put the letter in a bit of context uh, and backgrounds. Uh, we are uh, Sarah. Uh, uh, Rachel, did I say did I say Sarah? Did I say Rachel? I did say Rachel. I just thought I said Sarah. Um, as Rachel said at the start, uh, we're beginning a new sermon series on uh, one Corinthians, and uh, the series will uh, go right through to the beginning of Advent. So that's uh, quite a few weeks, a couple of months, and of course it's one in which uh, all the church will be involved with, maybe through home groups or uh, just more individual conversations with each other, uh, and uh, we're going to be challenged and changed, uh, I'm confident, by this series. Well, why look at 1 Corinthians? Uh, it's a letter that's got a lot of relevance to the 21st century, even though it's written a long time ago to a very different situation to us here in uh, Shropshire. Uh, it was written, of course, I'm sure you know, by the Apostle Paul. Uh, that's, that's, I'm sure, what you do know, but perhaps a little bit more background for you. It was written in the year AD 54, and uh, Paul was residing in Ephesus when he wrote this letter. It was written after Paul himself had stayed in the city of Corinth for about 18 months, uh, the, uh, the people who know about this sort of thing have dated that from March of AD 50 to September AD 51. Uh, we know that because of what uh, Dr. Luke writes in the Acts of the Apostles, and we know that also by the way that Paul expresses uh, what he says and, and the sort of places and people he's been with uh, in his travels. Now, fundamentally, if you want to understand 1 Corinthians, you need to read uh, Acts chapter 18. So let's have a, a look up of Acts chapter 18. So if you could just grab a Bible, either a, a pew Bible or your own, and turn to Acts chapter 18, which from memory of the first service is on page 1114, is that correct? Yeah, so page 1114. And I can't stress enough how much this chapter, Acts 18, really helps to understand 1 Corinthians. Because it's the background, it's the backdrop, it's, it's the account uh, of his stay, or Luke's account of, of Paul's stay in Corinth. So Acts chapter 18, we'll, we'll look at just one verse, literally, uh, at this point. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. So what's happened is, of course, you, you'll know about uh, his time in Athens, the Areopagus, one of the most amazing sermons that has ever been preached. And uh, Paul speaks right into the heart of Athens, of course, hugely influential in uh, Greek thinking and uh, thinking around the Mediterranean. And uh, he challenges them to consider who Jesus is. And then he goes straight, it says, from there to Corinth. Now, that's, as the, as the crow flies, about 45 miles. Of course, in those days, you couldn't fly. <laughs> uh, so he would have gone by boat, travelled around uh, the coast and up to Corinth, which is northwest of Athens, if I've got my geography right. And, uh, and it's amazing. We haven't got time to read that chapter. So your homework, if you want that sort of thing, which I'm sure you do, is to read Acts chapter 18 before next Sunday, because John Tiller's preaching the next in the series, and you'll help him having read that. So Acts chapter 18, have a look at that between now and next Sunday. So he goes to Corinth, we know that. 
We know that he was worried about going to Corinth. So go back to 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You could uh, read out a page number because my Bible's my own, not the, the church one. I've got a page number for 1 Corinthians chapter 1145, thank you. So page 1145. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 3. Paul writes, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. So this is Paul. This is the great apostle. He is the, the, the most amazing evangelist uh, of all Christian history. Uh, church planter, fearless, bold. And yet he says he came to them in great fear and trembling. Now he's got good reason for that because Corinth was a, a den of iniquity. It really was. It was not a place you wanted to visit as a tourist. Let me read to you this description of Corinth from a commentary on the letter. Corinth was the biggest city Paul had yet encountered. A brash new commercial metropolis. It squeezed nearly a quarter of a million people into a comparatively small area. A large proportion being, being slaves engaged in the unending movement of goods. Slaves or free, Corinthians were rootless, cut off from their country background, drawn from races and districts all over the empire. A curiously close parallel to the population of a 21st century inner city. Paul has seen a Christian church grow and flourish in the moderately sized cities he had founded in Macedonia. However, if the love of Christ Jesus could take root in Corinth, the most populated, wealthy, commercial-minded and sex-obsessed city of Eastern Europe, it must prove powerful anywhere. Corinth, as pointed out there, it was a big, brash, smelly, noisy mishmash of philosophies and cultures and religions. Now, that's not much like Basin Hill. I, you know, we're not really like that so much, are we? However, Paul goes to this big, brash city to plant a new church even though he's scared he's he is worried about going there and you can read that in acts chapter 18 having stayed there he leaves corinth and he goes to ephesus and it's while he's in ephesus he receives a report about this new church he's just started in corinth and we know that from 1 corinthians chapter 1 so 1 corinthians chapter 1 verse 11 where he writes, My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. So what's happened is he's gone to Ephesus, away from Corinth. He's received a news report by hand about what's going on in, this, in, in the new church in Corinth. And it's not good news. So he writes the letter of 1 Corinthians to the Corinthians. Now, what was the church like there? Have a listen to this description. It was a large church. Many Corinthians were converted to Christ. It was full of cliques, each following a different personality. Many Christians were very snobbish. At fellowship meals, the rich kept to themselves and the poor were left alone. There was very little church discipline. A lot of laxity was allowed, both in morals and in doctrine, an all-too-common combination. They were unwilling to submit to authority of any kind, and the integrity of Paul's own apostleship was frequently questioned. There was a distinct lack of humility and of consideration for others. 
some being prepared to take fellow Christians to court and others celebrating their newfound freedom in Christ without the slightest regard for the less robust consciences of fellow believers. In general, they were very keen on the more dramatic gifts of the Spirit and were short on love rooted in the truth. This, this is the church Paul greets. So it's not a very encouraging picture really, is it? Uh, it's a church full of squabbling, it's a church full of uh, cliques, it lacks morality. And, and so in this series we're going to look at various quite difficult issues. Um, things of unity and disunity, uh, about uh, sexual purity and impurity, the use of the gifts of the spirit in worship, issues of love, issues of life, issues of death, and so on. And, and Paul's teaching lays out really what a, a church needs to be like to be distinctive and holy in a culture which has either never heard the gospel or has gone away from the gospel or is indifferent to the gospel. Now, if that's not relevant to us, I don't know what is, because that's our situation. So, um, we're going to have the reading, and as we hear the reading uh, from Joan Let's be praying for God's guidance as we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, beginning to read at verse 18. So you've all got your Bibles open today. <laughs> it's um, from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30, um, sorry, 18 to 31, and it's on page 1144. Christ crucified is God's power and wisdom. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what we were when we were called. Not many of us were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, 
Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. I'll just pray for Peter before he uh, brings us our sermon. Thank you, Lord, for the time Peter has spent in preparing this for us. I pray that our ears, hearts and minds will be open to hear what it is um, you want us to be doing here in Baston Hill. Amen. I wonder if you've ever been to somewhere and there's been a, a really imposing building, a grand building, a, a really awe-inspiring building, and been amazed at it. Uh, last year, Debbie and I uh, were really fortunate enough to go to Barcelona for a few days, and uh, one of the buildings that I saw there was really one of the most amazing we've ever seen, the Basilica of the Sagrada Familia. Uh, some of you, I'm sure, have seen it in person as well. It's designed by Garrity. Uh, it was an amazing building. You could see it right from a long way away because, uh, you know, on the skyline or uh, uh, high above, you could see it from a long way away. Uh, amazing building, awe-inspiring. And as we approached it and, and you got near it, loads and loads of tourists, obviously, everywhere, uh, as you got near it, you, you sort of became just in awe again of its size, its, uh, the, the imposing nature of it, and, and I began to feel really quite small compared to it, particularly as I got right up close, it soars right up there, it's got massive towers and turrets and you know, stonework, and it's amazing design. And uh, I just felt really quite small, well I was, compared to it. Uh, and that's the kind of experience, you know, when you draw up to something awesome or big or imposing, that's how you feel, you begin to feel small, little. Perhaps insignificant. And, and that's precisely the dynamic that occurs when, in our hearts when we draw close to the cross. Because the cross is, is the most awesome display of God's glory and power ever. The cross of Jesus Christ. In this reading that Jonah's just read in 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to discuss the wisdom and the power of the cross. And the foolishness of the cross. Now, as I said, the, the, one of the reasons Paul wrote this is because of, of issues of unity and disunity. And the cross is our place of unity. It's, it's the place where we gather around for unity. It's where the Christian faith brings us together. And in the second half of chapter 1, Paul answers the question, why does God use the foolishness of the cross to save? And the answer might be surprising. God uses the foolish measure of the cross to show his wisdom and power. In other words, God fools us, if you like. He fools us so that he himself can show his wisdom and power. Look at verses 18 and 19. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Do you notice, Paul is saying there's basically two groups in humanity. And there's only two. You've got the perishing and the ones who are being saved. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. There are only two groups in the entire population of the world throughout time 
And do you notice, as, as Joe was reading it, Paul goes on and on about foolishness. There's a word he uses just in, in this uh, first half of the reading, uh, five times in eight verses. He says he, the foolishness, he's talking about the foolishness of those who reject the cross. Now, I know you're all uh, New Testament Greek scholars, and uh, that's great. Uh, just to remind you, though, that the root of the Greek word uh, for foolishness, or the, the Greek word, is Moriah. That's where we get uh, the word moron. So our English word, moron, is from a, a New Testament Greek word, Moriah. And, and so, basically, Paul is using this word, which means moron. Okay? Uh, and it, the idea is something that's is either ri- ridiculous or ignorant or stupid or contemptible. That's what the word means. Now, if, if you were to be called, you moron, you know, you'd be insulted, wouldn't you? You would, rightly so. But that is the word that Paul uses here, not just once, five times in a few verses. Look at verse 18. For the message of the cross is Moriah. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So Paul basically is saying this. He's saying most people in the world consider the cross as moronic. You know, it's silly, it's ridiculous, contemptible even. Now, I haven't haven't done a survey of of the human race, but I would imagine most people think that probably because the top reason is it offends our pride. The the word of the cross, the message of the cross, offends people's pride. Because the message of the cross is that God grants us salvation by his grace. Not human merit, not human intellect, it's God's grace. So that cuts across pride. Secondly... Not only that, it is for everyone. It's, it's level ground. The, cross, the foot of the cross is level ground. It is the place where anyone can come and meet God and meet Jesus as he dies on the cross for us. It is through faith. It is faith. It is by grace. That's the work of Jesus Christ. And that offends people's pride. But for the Christian, the cross is the power of God. The cross is for a Christian everything. John Stott, uh, one of the most amazing Christian teachers of the last century, said this. Quote, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I turned to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He set aside his, his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood and tears and death and died for you and for me. Now that really sums up, you know, if you want an ex- the argument for the existence of God and, and God saving us through pain and suffering, well, you've got it in what John Stott says there, the power of the cross. God rescues us. His rescue strategy is to do what appears to be weak by allowing his own son to die on the cross, the cruelest of deaths. 
And again, this offends pride, our pride, humanity's pride. Because God doesn't need anyone else. God does not need anyone else to save the world. It does not need anyone but himself to accomplish salvation. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let's move on a bit. Verse 20. Paul asks four questions. He says, where are the wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? What have those people got in common? They're all experts. They're all professional experts. They're all deemed as wise. But God hasn't simply disregarded the wisdom of the world or shown it to be foolish. He has made foolish the wisdom of the world. Think about it. If you were going to come up with a a salvation plan for the world, what would you do? If you were asked to think about a way that you're going to save the entire world, the entire cosmos, the universe, what would you think of? Now, again, I haven't surveyed everyone, and I, I'm, I'm, but I'm a member of the human race, so I'm just guessing. If I was to be asked that awesome question, probably I'd come up with a savings plan, as in, like, saving money. Okay, it's like a salvation plan, a saving money plan. So, for example, what I would think of probably is, okay, God, if I do something good, uh, whatever that is, a good deed, I'm going to put one pound in my bank balance, in my savings account. Every time I do something good, I'm going to put some money in my savings accounts. And, and every whatever it is, I'm going to help somebody cross the road. I'm going to cook a meal for someone. I'm going to uh, say thank you. I'm going to you know, bless someone, whatever it is. Every time I do something good, everything, I do something kind, I'm going to put some money in my savings accounts. And when it gets to £100,000, hey presto, I'm going to say to God, God, I've done enough to be saved because I've done everything I should have done to get to that level of goodness and God says no that is not the way to save the world God does something which is completely upside down to that he turns our wisdom around and he says no the way I'm going to save the world is by sending my son into the world and I'm going to send him in in humility And he's going to end up dying on a cross. He is my son with whom I am well pleased. And yet he is going to come and die for you on the cross. And what the cross does, it simultaneously does two things all at the same time. Because what it does is, it it says to us that he judges sin. Sin is serious. Sin is, it needs to be dealt with. And so by dying on the cross, sin is dealt with because God's son dies for us. And yet simultaneously at the same time, it says, it's saying to us that God loves us so much that he is willing to die for us. So you've got the two sides of that coin. You've got the justice of God and the love of God going on all at the same time. Wow. What wisdom is that? Way beyond our thinking, way beyond our imagination. Uh, there's an American botanist of the last century called George Washington Carver. He was, uh, he was a slave. Uh, uh, until he was freed and then he, he became a botanist a scientist and in his, his, his little, little place where he had uh, he had a place called God's little workshop his laboratory and one day he used to pray you know, while he was working and, and one day he was praying to God 
and he had a conversation with God and it went along like this because he, he records it later. He said, uh, dear creator God, please tell me what the universe was made for. And God replied back to him, mm, ask for something with a little bit more that your mind can comprehend. So uh, Carver tried again. Dear creator God, what was man made for? Again, the Lord replied to him, little man, you ask too much. Cut down the size of your request and improve its intent. So the scientist tried once again. Dear creator God, will you tell me please why you made the peanuts? Now you've got it, says the Lord to him. And beginning that day, he uh, came up with 300 ways to use the humble peanuts, including paper, shaving cream, and of course, peanut butter. Now, what that's saying is, is that basically, compared to God, our brain, our mind is peanut-sized. Compared to God, who is all-wise and all-powerful, our, our minds are the size of a peanut. Because God is immense. How can we understand why he made the world? The sooner off we understand that he is so wise and so good, the better off we will be. The word of the cross is a foolish message designed to help us to glorify God for his wisdom and his power. Verse 25, let's look at that quickly. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. It's a great verse because what that does, you see, it puts me in my place. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. What it's saying is basically is that even if God, which is a very big if, even if God was foolish and weak, which is, of course he's not, his foolishness and weakness would be so much that we'd be overwhelmed. Another way I understood uh, that I was reading about uh, this week as I was trying to understand this is that God, in a sense, humbles himself that he even allows us to believe in him through the cross. There's, there's humility even in that. In that, in that most horrendous death, God allows us to believe in him just by the cross. Let's get practical. How does the word of the cross relate to our lives as, we come to, as I come to an end? Three things I just wanted to suggest to you, how this word relates to our lives. Firstly, let's seek to ponder the wonder of the cross. Now, the cross, of course, is a popular symbol in some ways today, isn't it? People wear it around their neck on a pendant or a necklace. Uh, it's used in decorations. It's used, of course, in stained glass windows, not that we have in our church. Uh, of course, we've got the big cross here. Uh, people wear it for all sorts of reasons, some for perhaps uh, less than holy reasons. Uh, the sign of the cross is made by those who are about to kick a penalty in the World Cup <laughs> or play a final at Wimbledon. Uh, it's made by pilots before they take off and so on and so on. Uh, you may have even heard of the gambler who was at the racetrack and he was uh, obviously seeking to, to, to make some money. And he saw a vicar who made the sign of a cross over a horse and probably bet all he had on that horse. Uh -huh. However, when the horse came in last, 
He wanted to know why. So he went up to the vicar and said, Vicar, why did that horse that I saw you bless with the sign of the cross come in last? And with surprise, the vicar responded, well, I wasn't blessing that horse. I was giving it the last rites. Now, it sort of illustrates, in a, in a bad way, but it illustrates that perhaps the cross has been emptied of its power by some. You can't empty the power of the cross, but perhaps people have, have underestimated the power of the cross in our society. We've lost, perhaps, the significance of the cross. So again, perhaps we need to just come back to the cross and be in awe and wonder at the cross. Lord, take me back to the cross. Help me to see it anew and afresh. Secondly, as we start a new term, um, I think Ian's a bit ahead of us. I don't think the scores have gone back quite yet. They're going back on Tuesday as far as I know, but they go back this week. Um, and and as, we, as we start a new term, as we make those connections, uh, as we chat with our friends, as we chat with our neighbours, as we chat with work colleagues, as we get to know people around and about in all sorts of places, we must make those connections and build those bridges with the cross. Because we can try and make Christianity popular in our own strength. We can, mark, we can try and make it attractive in our own strength. But if we don't communicate the wisdom and the power of the cross, then we're taking away really what's central in our faith. We're communicating a faith without Christ. Because Christianity without the cross is like music without a tune. So when we do that, when we engage in conversations with, with people, wherever that is, our friends or our neighbours or those who we're getting to know, cough in the living room or the street corner, in the shop, whatever it is, the Apostle Paul says to us, point people to the cross. Point people to the cross. Because the, cro- the cross is what makes our message unique and powerful. Ponder the cross. Build bridges with the cross. And finally... It might take a crucified church to bring a crucified Christ before the eyes of the world. What do I mean by that? Well, as Paul says, the the cross, Christ's cross, makes foolish human wisdom. The cross insults, if you like, our intelligence because, you know, in our wanting it to be more complicated, it's not because it's simple. The cross insults our ability. We don't need to do anything. God has done it for us. And the cross insults our ambition, that we want the the, the glory for us, and no, the glory goes to God. And yet the churches are going to do great things for God are those who are weak and foolish in the eyes of the world, so that God can fool the world and receive power and strength and wisdom. Ultimately, all that we believe is wrapped up in the cross. It's the central truth of our faith. It's the preeminent event in human history. It's our message, it's our hope, it's our confidence. It's our badge of honour. It's our emblem when we suffer for Jesus. Even though the world despises the cross, we rally to it. So therefore, let us love the cross. Let us preach the cross. Let us stand by the cross. Let us never be ashamed of the cross. Let's hold it, uh, hold it high as the banner of our salvation. Lift it up as the hope of the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are in awe and wonder at your cross.
However we look at it, however we ponder it, we are in awe at your wisdom and your power made perfect. Lord, help us to point people to the cross. It's the place where we meet you. It's the place where we are saved by you. It's the place where we are given that title, son or daughter of the living God. Help us to point people to the cross. Fill us with your power, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.